The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Fed Day, folks. Fed Day, folks. Fed Chair Jay Powell testifying before the House Financial Services Committee. Maxine Waters territory. But AOC stole the show. Not even Maxine Waters could get Larry Kudlow to agree with Democrats on something, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could. We're going to, yeah, I'm saying this right, folks. AOC and Larry Kudlow agree on something, and we found that out today at the House Financial Services Committee hearing room. I'm going to bring that, the policy on that, the yield curve. We're also going to talk about rate cuts and the latest, the latest on this horrific, horrific scandal regarding Jeffrey Epstein and now... Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta. Acosta says he's staying put. He gave a press conference earlier this afternoon. We will bring you his remarks. We have an all-star panel to help us navigate through what, what became a, a fascinating, busy, busy news day. Antoine Seawright, Democratic strategist, the founder and CEO of Blueprint Strategy, former senior advisor to Hillary Clinton's as focusing primarily in South Carolina. And Maddie Zuppler, a friend of the program, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. I'll also bring you my exclusive interview with the top Republican on the House Financial Services Committee, Congressman Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina. Busy, busy, busy news day. U.S. Labor Secretary Alex Acosta defending his handling of Jeffrey Epstein's plea deal when he was the top federal prosecutor in Southern Florida over a decade ago. I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal. He says his relationship with President Trump remains good. And despite the renewed scrutiny since Epstein's arrest over the weekend on fresh charges out of New York, of course, Jeffrey Epstein, the billionaire financier of New York, of Florida fame, uh, has been charged, charged, facing federal charges for having sex with minors uh, and is charged with sex trafficking now. It has engulfed, engulfed the country's attention uh, as accusers are coming forward. Uh, and it, it, it's a scandal that keeps growing. Politicians on both sides of the aisle distancing themselves from Jeffrey Epstein, who was a staple, a staple amongst the social, certain social, social circles in the elite, elite upper echelons of society, most, mostly in, in Florida, as well as in New York. With me for the hour, Antoine Seawright, Democratic strategist, and Maddie Zuppler, a senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, former coalition's director for the House Republican 
conference. Maddie, I'll start with you. I want to get your take because Secretary Acosta really facing accusations of having given a sweetheart deal, Mm -hmm. as many are calling it, to Jeffrey Epstein, facing calls for his resignation. I want to play for you what he had to say earlier today regarding the his handling of the Jeffrey Epstein case when he was the U.S. attorney in Florida. Take a listen. I'm pleased that the New York prosecution is going forward. They brought these charges based on new evidence against Jeffrey Epstein, who is now a registered sex offender. And this is a very, very good thing. His acts are despicable. And the New York prosecution offers an important opportunity to more fully bring Epstein to justice. That was Labor Secretary Alex Acosta speaking earlier today to reporters in Washington, D.C., hanging on to his job, Maddie. Well, you know, and that's the reason, I guess, that he decided it was prudent to get up and hold a press conference about a case that he participated in over a decade ago. I don't understand this calculus, particularly at a time where we have 65 different news cycles that happen in one day. I, if I were advising him on this, I would say just be quiet for a few moments, for a few days, and another headline will take the heat off of you. I I, I understand that he feels like he needs to get up and defend this, but you know, I'm also not a lawyer, but I think relitigating a case that has been dormant for so long uh, will only serve to create troubles for him in the future. Mr. Seawright. You can run, but you can't hide. Wow, I like uh, how you I respectfully cleared your throat. Like a clear <laughs> right into the mic, too. Yeah, like, uh, you can run, like, but you can't Let me clear my throat. <laughs> you can run, but you can't hide. Um, this is very unfortunate. And we all know this was a secretary under the 44th president of the United States. Republicans would be driving themselves off the political cliff. What we also know uh, is the fact that for the first time in a long time, we see Democrats and Republicans who agree that he either needs to resign or the president must remove him or some action needs to be taken because he cannot fulfill his job knowing the situation. Which Republicans have said that he needs to resign? Because I haven't seen this. There were several mentioned in the Hill. Um, There were several mentioned in the Hill today, um, an article today to talk about something has to be done um, very much immediately. Several U.S. senators, the, but there's an audience of one, right? And right, that's President exactly. Trump. And, 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 well, that's that's what right. this interview was for. That's what this interview was about. This right. interview was about tickling the ear of Donald Trump to give some political cover to drag this out as much as possible. And to your point, to fast forward to a different news cycle. And I do think that you raise a good point, which is kind of the bipartisan nature of some of the. Uh, I don't want to say the allegations here, but there have been there's been um, some conversation that it's possible that this web goes much deeper and it will uh, include people on both sides of the aisle. If indeed what the feds are trying to do here is not just take Epstein down, but other people who are involved in a bigger scandal. There was a moment. There was a moment at this press conference with Labor Secretary Acosta where he was asked by a reporter if he had any regrets, any regrets for how he handled this. And in hindsight, you know, I, I covered the Jerry Sandusky trial now, what was that, eight, eight nine years ago. And I, this moment in this press conference reminded me of when Penn, the, the late now Penn State football coach Joe Paterno was asked by a reporter if he had any regrets. And Joe Paterno said, quote, I wish I would have done more. Secretary Acosta today, when asked that same question, similar question, said that it is a, quote, very hard question to answer. Uh, and 
I'm reading from the Hill newspaper, stressed that he believes it would have been too risky to, quote unquote, roll the dice by taking Epstein to trial with the evidence his office had. We did what we did because we wanted to see Epstein go to jail. He needed to go to jail uh, is what is what he had said. You know, unlike what happened in the in the public sphere, I guess you would call it at Penn State or to some extent in the Catholic Church about who knew what and when and how the system, how the judicial system handles it. In this case, Acosta's role in the judicial system, really it's up to President Trump if he wants to keep him on board. And I want to play for you what Secretary Acosta had to say with regards to his relationship with President Trump as of today. Take a listen. My relationship with the president's outstanding. Uh, he has, I think, very publicly um, made clear that, that I've got his support. That was Secretary Acosta saying uh, that the president does support him. Yesterday, we brought you the news that President Trump had said uh, that he does feel sorry for the criticism that Acosta is receiving. The president also saying that he still has confidence in his labor secretary. Uh, And, you know, I I, I mean, you know this, Antoine. I mean, ultimately, it's up. It it really doesn't matter what what who's calling on him to resign. It's up to President Trump. Well, I know, but this is where I think we have to put aside the partisan wheelings and dealings of D.C. and do what's right. Um, and we all know it's right. You know, a lawyer friend of mine texted this to me during the press conference. He said, at what point is Acosta going to get to the point where he admits he had violated federal law by not informing the victims about the deal he is defending? That's a real question. But I don't think that we know that. I mean, the whole premise of Acosta's argument is that we did not have the evidence to convict. Thus, what we did was in the interest of trying to make sure that someone that we had a reasonable a point. presumption was guilty got to see some punishment for his crime. Exactly. You only get one shot. Exactly. And, and so, so in, and then that's... That's the challenge here, particularly for Acosta, which is he's not going to be able to disclose what evidence they didn't have, because that's obviously a straw man. But he also can't go back and reopen this case to show, listen, we couldn't have proved beyond a a reasonable doubt that this was happening. Um, So we went with the tactic that we thought would get the most amount of punishment that we thought we could defend. Well, both of us are not lawyers. But again, I think the point was he did not inform the victims. And then this this press conference to me, this is why I got pissed off about the press conference. It seems as if he was trying to paint himself as a hero in all of this. I mean, you saw the same That's press conference. That's why I don't understand the press conference. I, I didn't, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't say that he, I, he didn't apologize. He did not apologize in that press conference. And you're, I, I, you, you alluded to this Hill article and I've got it in front of me. Uh, this was published last night by Alexander Bolton and Brett Samuels, Acosta on shaky ground as GOP support wavers. They quote an anon- they quote a GOP senator who spoke anonymously uh, saying that he's on shaky ground. But Ben Sass was on Fox News, Martha McCallum's show, uh, and he said, quote, the guy victimized dozens, probably scores of little girls, and the sentence he got was pathetic. The sentence, of course, he's alluding to was with regards to Acosta. And every mom and dad in America, frankly, not just moms and dads, but anybody with a heart, should be heartbroken by what happened to those girls, to those victims, but also with the absurdity of a sentence that short. Uh, I mean... Uh, Majority Leader McConnell offered no defense of Acosta. And, you know, I mean, that that's where things stand. But Acosta's argument is, hey, we got the evidence. We want we wanted this this guy, this criminal, this this behind bars. But we can only take one shot at it. And we did the best we could with the information that we had. Respectfully, 
I, I mean, maybe the tone. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about tone again, like we do in Washington <laughs> now all the time over the president, the tone, the tweets, blah blah blah. But you know, I think I think the tone today, Maddie. Do you, let me ask a question. Do you think the tone was a little tone deaf? I certainly think that if you are going to create a platform where you are making this argument. Uh, you need to be contrite about the pain and suffering that is resulting from these circumstances, even if you think you made the right decision legally. I think showing that kind of empathy um, and contrition that these circumstances even arose is is crucial. You know, I judge my politics and I take the temperature by things that most people don't. So I, I spoke to my barber earlier today. And I asked him what the conversation was in the barbershop. And he said, you know what? There are people who look like you, Antoine, who are doing more time for a whole lot less. And I think that's why you see so many people angry and frustrated. You know what? That, well said. And coming up, we're going we're gonna to talk politics and policy. Panel's going to stay. Antoine C. Wright, Maddie Dupler. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. It was a busy day in the Rayburn House Office Building where Fed Chair Jay Powell testified before the House Financial Services Committee, chaired, of course, by Maxine Waters. But it was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who was able to find common ground with Fed Chair Powell, as well as the president's chief economic advisor of the National Economic Council of Advisors, Larry Kudlow. We're going to dive into that tidbit coming up with an all-star panel. Antoine Seawright, Democratic strategist. Maddie Dupler, the former coalition's director for the House Republican Conference. Now she's a senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union. We can't have Fed Day. We can't have Jobs Day without Maddie. (laughs) So I want to talk about AOC and Larry because we were talking about that. And I mean, I was like, stop talking. We got to talk about it on air. But before we get to that, the two biggest takeaways of this are it looks like there's going to be a rate cut at the end of the month that the Fed is going mm-hmm. to cut interest rates. I mean, he didn't he left. I mean, it's the Fed. So it's like you're translating everything <laughs> in Fed speak. But he didn't really, you know, investors on the street. They they interpreted his remarks as saying essentially, all right, there's going to be a rate cut at the end of the month. No. Yeah, when you're listening to the chairman or to Fed speak, really what you're looking for is the dispositive, right? So it's the fact that the Fed chairman today did not in any way dilute hopes that there would be a rate cut at the end of the month that leads us to believe that a rate cut is coming. And I right. think that, that that's really the important takeaway here. He talked a lot about what continues to weigh on his mind and thus what he thinks weighs on the global economy, um, trade being one of them, which I actually think is interesting given that we saw some headlines about USMCA and maybe some inertia behind some of these trade pressures today. Um, it will be interesting, I think, as Powell travels to the other side of the hill tomorrow, whether there are any developments that uh, he gets asked about when it comes to there being progress on the trade So, uh, before the big takeaway, rate cut expected at the end of the month, rate cut expected at the end of the month, this based upon Fed Chair Jay Powell's testimony before the House Financial Services Committee. I, but you mentioned the uncertainties, and, and mm-hmm. they keep talking about this. All the different Fed folks, and, and whenever they're speaking publicly, and Fed Chair Powell as well, about the uncertainty that the trade disputes have injected into the economy. But it, it's not making their decision; it's not impacting their decision on rates. 
Right. And I should mention, too, that I think the other kind of standout uh, comment that the chairman made was that the uh, jobs report from last month, which, of course, we were talking about last week, which was very, very strong, particularly after... 224,000 jobs added to the U.S. economy, smattering, smattering, smashing. (laughs) I don't even know what words I was trying to combine there. Smashing expectations. Exactly right. Um, And after a lackluster jobs report the previous month, uh, the chairman had said, you know, that really doesn't have a lot of bearing on our calculus headed into July. Now, if you had been reading his comments from so the previous does? meeting, if they do. We, yeah, we knew that he wasn't really looking at jobs. He know, we know kind of what Powell thinks about the employment picture. Something we're going to talk about a little bit earlier is employment versus inflation, which yeah. of course is the Fed's dual mandate. He has just, some questions about whether or not uh, there's a cleave between those two components. Um, but when it comes to kind of uncertainty in the economy, he is looking at the global tensions that have been uh, that have resulted from trade business investment in the United States as well, and other metrics that allow us to gauge whether or not the economic recovery will right. continue into the future. He's, he's, cutting, uh, he's cutting interest rates, and candidly, I mean, that's what President Trump wants. President Trump, Antoine, has been tweeting at Fed Chair Powell, threatening him with his job with regards to this. He says that China's eating our lunch, eating our lunch. And, and, and you know, I, I, I think the reason the president, at least this is what I gather from folks that I talk with inside of the Beltway who are a lot smarter than I am. They say, obviously, he can turn the Fed chair into a uh, into a, a boogeyman should the economy go south. But also, he's tapping into what folks associate the Fed with, which is interest rates. When people think of the Fed outside of the Beltway and all throughout the country in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, they think of the Fed and they think of interest rates. So if the president is tweeting and saying an interview after interview, lower rates, lower rates, what does that mean? It means folks can get a loan. And that is communicating to the type of voters, those swing voters, that he's going to need. But you and I were talking about this, Antoine, in the break. Uh, He's getting it from the president on Twitter. Maxine Waters, who chairs the committee, led the hearing. Led the hearing with this moment. Take a listen. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Mr. Chairman, if you got a call from the president uh, today or tomorrow and he said, I'm firing you, pack up, it's time to go, what would you do? Well, of course, I would not do that. I can't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) My answer would be no. (laughs) I laughed. I mean, you got the theater. Go ahead, Antoine. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that was going to be my point. That's the, I think that was probably one of the bigger takeaways from today's hearing, the fact that we know there's some political pressure, uh, which is, in my mind, unprecedented, uh, from the president uh, to show his disgust and dislike uh, for the fair chair. And the chair was very clear that he would not resign, um, which I think will be a, another shifting conversation um, politically. Um, But it also says to me in typical Trump speak is that he is setting him up 
to point blame if things go south at some point between now and re-election. But you know what? He keeps keeping the rates low. Then it doesn't matter. He's there's, doing, there's he's doing a, exactly there. what what President Trump wants. It's, it's going to be. We're yeah. going to stick with the Fed. There's more to talk about with AOC and Larry Kudlow. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. And I was up in the Rayburn House office building today where uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell, Fed Chair Jay Powell, uh, really signaling the markets that we're likely going to get a rate cut at the end of the month. At least that's how the, the markets interpreted interpreted his testimony before Maxine Waters' committee, the House Financial Services committee. Uh, so the rate cut, and then he says that he's not going to step down should the should the president, hypothetical, should the president ask him to step aside or resign. Got laughters inside of the committee hearing room. But it was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who was able to find common ground between herself and Larry Kudlow. Take a listen to her exchange with Fed Chair Jay Powell. Here she is. I've been seeing lately that economists are increasingly worried that the idea of a Phillips curve that links unemployment and inflation is no longer describing what is happening in today's economy. Have you been considering on that? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, very much so. We spend a a great deal of time on that. The the connection between um, slack in the economy or the level of, of unemployment and inflation was very strong if you go back 50 years, and it's gotten weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where it's it's um, it's a faint heartbeat that you can hear now. It's still there. You can see it at state-level data and things like that. But I, I think we really have learned, though, that the economy can sustain much lower unemployment than we thought without troubling levels of inflation. Maddie Dupler is the former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. And Maddie, looks like you could have uh, had a coalition there between <laughs> a- <laughs> between Don't AOC, tell me between that. AOC and Larry Kudlow. Explain, explain. Don't tell me that there aren't strange bedfellows in the Trump administration <laughs> era here in D.C. No. You know, Larry Kudlow is a chameleon. That, that I will say that. So, you know. It's true. And you know what, Kevin, like, I've been on this show how many times where I've said, like, listen, we have got to scrutinize some of these metrics that we use to evaluate the economy. And I think that uh, Chairman Powell today kind of got close to uh, saying that as well which is we are now in the longest economic expansion in modern history, uh, really since we've started looking at the economy. And that should probably provoke uh, all observers to question whether or not we have the proper tools to gauge um, what the economy looks like and what kind of capacity it has. You know, a couple of years ago, the Fed was saying that full employment had us at unemployment um, above 4%. We're now uh, at 36 percent and under four percent for the entire year. So there's obvious that there's been a breakdown between some of these assumptions. The question is, what is the uh, consequence for public policy, both from a monetary standpoint as the Fed evaluates it, but from a fiscal yeah. policy standpoint uh, as mo- public policymakers on co- so, in Congress contemplate this? So, you know, look, I'm, I'm in a level. I'm an honest guy. I'm an honest guy. I got in trouble in high school for falling asleep in my econ class, <laughs> so I had to dust off some of my. Uh, I'm not passing one. Antoine C. Wright's still here, and uh, <laughs> I just shook Demo- him awake over here. Democratic, <laughs> Democratic, <laughs> Democratic strategist. Listen, Antoine. So I'll remind you and me both yeah, about the Phillips curve, mm. which I, lo- I mean, obviously, I nerd out over this stuff. I, I was a late bloomer. The uh, 
the Phillips curve theory says that low unemployment will inevitably and inevitably bring higher inflation. Low unemployment means higher inflation. Well, we have incredibly low employment right now. And we haven't seen much inflation. So the Phillips curve theory, all of these economists, maybe that's why I fell asleep, all of these <laughs> economists who have informed the AP Econ books for all of our students, well, this theory, this Phillips curve is not exactly holding up. And that is where AOC and Larry Kudlow agree. They're saying, wait a minute, this Phillips curve theory of what everybody said, low unemployment mean, leads to high inflation, well... It's not holding up. And so that's what AOC was asking, Antoine. And Larry or Jay Powell, the Fed chair, he says, quote, the connection between slack in the economy or the level of unemployment and inflation was very strong if you go back 50 years. So he's saying that this Phillips curve was relevant 50 years ago. Oh, I don't know. We didn't have the internet 50 years or maybe we have I a lot of things. We have a lot of things. We have cryptocurrency, which I'm going to play for you guys <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, this bipartisan interview, because the Libra hearing, the Facebook Libra hearing is there. But, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's remarkable. I mean, essentially, it's part of a broader trend, Antoine, right, of are the metrics that we're using, if it's not just to decide interest rates at the Federal Reserve, it's data for the Census Bureau. It's everything. Well, I'll say this. Uh, I believe in Philip and his curve, <laughs> uh, and that is conventional wisdom. Uh, I don't think we're living in conventional times. <laughs> Uh, and the story has yet to be written um, completely mm-hmm. about this economy and what it means because you, there's so many factors to consider coming out of the worst recession in my political lifetime with Barack Obama inherited, this new norm we had to make adjustments to, and now the success that Trump is having for some in this economy. Conventional wisdom is out of the window, so that doesn't mean Philip and his curve is wrong. It just means that conventional times and conventional wisdom is out, and it is yet to be written. While we may be enjoying that today, tomorrow, next year, this time, could be different. And I think Donald Trump has flirted and hinted with this in every move he's made and point he's made about this economy. Well, and you heard some of this in the hearing today, too, when there were some questions directed at Powell asking him about what kind of fiscal policy did he think was appropriate if indeed we did enter another recession. Um, And of course, the the chairman didn't say explicitly what he thought was appropriate, but he said that some of the tools that were used in 2009 would be what he would expect to see out of Congress if we were to enter a recession period again. But it's interesting because there is so much re- so much research now being devoted to this question of how do we know what we know and can we know more about the economy if we aren't looking if we aren't uh, held beholden to some of these old models. Conventional wisdom. Ex- I like how you say conventional wisdom. That makes it seem a little more folksy, but it, it, it's it's true that things are different now. We didn't have the internet even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the internet played a different role in our lives. And, and productivity, the economy is not as global. Well, exactly. And productivity and wages are all different because workers are different, their relationship to work and their relationship to their right. employment. Right, right. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get really nerdy because I might have <laughs> fallen asleep during like the charts and stuff. But uh, who is the Phillips curve named after? Maddie? Ooh, trivia. Trivia, trivia. Do you know? Don't get out the phones. Don't Google. The Phillips Curve. Who's it named after? Antoine? Somebody named Philip. No. Someone <laughs> named after William. Phillips is the last name. William yeah. Phillips was a New Zealand economist. And here's what I do remember from, from my days back as so a his teenager. name was Philip. He, he had a lot of odd jobs. <laughs> William. Okay. okay. Before, he had a lot of odd jobs. 
uh, including he was a crocodile hunter and a Stop. cinema manager. No, you can't, I'm telling you. I'm telling See, you. See, this is someone this who is has a broad, but this is someone who has a broad view of the employment picture, right? <laughs> like this goes to why we should be scrutinizing right. how we think about these things. All right. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Earlier today, I was covering the Fed Chair Jay Powell hearing before the House Financial Services Committee, and I caught up for Bloomberg Television with Congressman Patrick McHenry. He is the ranking member, the top Republican on House Financial Services Committee, and I asked him about Fed rates. Take a listen to our interview. This is Groundhog Day. Everyone's trying to divine some movement uh, in some future decision by a committee based off the testimony of one member of the committee. So I don't think we've got greater clarity on this. Um, and I don't think he's, he's said anything different than he said publicly so far today. So in terms of how the economy is doing, what did you gather from him? I think it's still going well. I think there are still those risk signs uh, globally and the impact it's having here on uh, our domestic economy. And uh, the, uh, when Chair Powell speaks to uh, wage growth, not being as strong as you'd like to see, in essence, I think that's an indicator of, of some form of rate cut. But I think that's consistent with what he said over the long run. How is, how is trade policy and the trade disputes that are going on geopolitically around the world, how has that impacted what's uh, the, the Fed's decisions from what he was saying? So well, I think based off of Fed data and publicly available data globally, China is slowed. And China has used uh, every means at their disposal, mainly monetary and governmental inter- interventions to keep their economy going. That's having an impact, um, which shows when the president has gotten strong and tough on China, on trade, it has impaired their economy. Uh, so there's, there are global growth, growth, con- uh, growth concerns about that, but there's also long-term benefit for Americans when we actually get trade policy right with China. So, so it's showing it's having an effect. Uh, but the, the fight is worth the fight long-term for economic stability. We've got the Fed chair here on Capitol Hill today. Next week is this big social media hearing about Facebook, about Libra, in terms of blockchain technology. You asked Fed Chair Powell about all of this, and, and, and really in particular about uh, whether or not blockchain could help to, to create some innovation in the U.S. economy. Well, uh, innovation and financial inclusion, I think, are fantastic Uh, benefits of uh, digital currency and blockchain. I think there's enormous opportunity here. Now, there are a lot of questions we have about Project Libra. The nature of it, why it's being developed in Switzerland, not here in the United States, uh, and the the major decisions going into this. Much less the the use of it and how they're going to to derive enough uh, reserves in global currencies to have a basket uh, upon which to, to peg this Libra currency. So there, there are huge questions about it. When Chair Powell spoke about financial stability being a great concern about Project Libra, it shows the magnitude of the impact this project could have. That was Congressman Patrick McHenry. He is a Republican on the House Financial Services Committee. He is the top Republican on the House Financial Services Committee, where Fed Chair Jay Powell testified today. With me in studio for the hour, Antoine Seawright, Democratic strategist, Maddie Zuppler, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference, 
what's on your radar, Maddie, for, so, uh, for, for this week? For this week, well, specifically for today, I am following this news that Bloomberg actually was the first to break this afternoon, that the administration is opening a 301 investigation into France. Uh, so this is an issue that I've been following for a while. This is in response to France trying to tax American digital companies. France is not the only country that has tried to do this. A lot of European countries have looked into this. OECD uh, tried to come up with a consensus approach to uh, taxing American tech companies. They couldn't do it because a lot of these taxes they're coming up with are discriminatory in nature. So different states are going in alone. The uh, Trump administration has decided that they are going to uh, slap, snap back with a 301 investigation. There are a number of tools the administration could use. I would encourage them to look at ways that they can use their own tax authority to try and get some of these countries to knock it off when it comes to taxing American uh, companies. A 301 investigation, obviously, we just got off an hour conversation about trade tensions yeah. and how the Fed is worried about them. That's going to create uh, some some further so tensions for the White we House. We kind of heard about, I mean, this is part of a broader broader issue here, which is how to protect tech firms and technology. 301 investigation is the same tool President Trump used to impose tariffs on Chinese goods. Uh, and so this is this is a, you know, a device that they're using. McHenry mentioned this with Libra. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to play for you guys an interview I did with Warren Davidson and Scott Gothheimer, a Republican and Democrat, respectively, uh, who are trying to get bipartisan legislation that would allow for blockchain companies to stay. So we're getting wonky in the weeds, but that is a huge deal. <laughs> it is. Great Keep for your radar. That. Antoine, what's on your radar? Uh, in the short term, um, the, Mueller invest, the Mueller hearing next week, and okay. then, of course, 2020. Yes. And how Democrats will re, uh, behave themselves in the upcoming debates and what that will mean oh for um, the fall. And Detroit. What, and what that will mean for all important South Carolina next year, February. All right. Kevin, what's on your radar? All right. Should I? Honestly, it has nothing to do with politics. My sister's getting married on Friday. Yay! My sister, my big sister Eileen, she's marrying Jeff Mealy. Uh, I'm headed to Philadelphia literally tonight. So I, I'm not going to be here, but my colleagues are going to fill in for us for the rest of the week. Uh, and That's we, so exciting. Are you I, giving a speech? I am. I'm giving the toast oh, at the rehearsal boy. dinner. Should I practice on air? Should I practice on air? How, like, how did they know that you could speak no, separately? You know what's crazy? And you know this, Maddie, and Antoine, you'll you'll know this. I'm actually really bad at like personal speeches. I'm yeah. much better talking about like politics Economics. and like the, the Phillips curve. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I said, talking I about Philip. Exactly. Like, you know what you I'm get the do? names right, I'm Kevin. That's pull important. Out a curve. I'm going to pull out a curve <laughs> for the Phillips curve. I'll have AOC and Larry Kudlow, and it'll be like a whole thing. It'll kill. The, it'll, it'll totally kill. kill. I'll put people to sleep <laughs> most important question if you get a call from the president and saying stop your speech would you do it yeah. oh. <laughs> you know oh. and look at that i want to give we're up against the clock i want to thank antoine seawright our good friend democratic strategist and sal uh, and blue and founder and ceo of blueprint strategy you got me stumbling <laughs> former senior advisor to the clinton the speech, camp yeah. In South Carolina, and of course to Maddie Tupler, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and former coalition's director for the House Republican Conference. I'm back to Delco, but the Sound On podcast will continue with my colleagues. You can download it on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. See you next week. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.